Hello and welcome to the St. Helens Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through some of the exciting things that have been happening in July beyond going on holiday and having a great time and enjoying the summer weather, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, in which case not a lot I can do about that. That's kind of a geography thing. So what can we talk about on the blog this month? There's been quite a variety of stuff, actually. There's, there's an interesting post, um, which I think you need to go and have a read and have a think about, from my colleague Craig Ferguson about game theory and this concept of finite and infinite games in emergency medicine. And this really comes from the, the sort of the study of game theory, which you may have come across through things like the film The Beautiful Mind, uh, the book, great book, actually, really good worth reading. But the idea that games can give us an insight into how systems work and this work has really come out of John von Neumann's original work back in the 40s and then taken further forward with a guy called Simon Sinek, motivational speaker, mostly about business, but we can apply some of the ideas into medicine. And what Craig does, and I'll, I'll, I say go and read it because he explains it much better than I'm going to do, is we can think of games um, in terms of them being a finite game. So a finite game is something like chess. So the rules are known in advance. There's a defined endpoint. The players know that they're players and we know what we're trying to achieve, really. And then there's infinite games. Infinite games are ones that continue and continue. So like a soccer league where you're trying to stay in, you keep going until you've run out of resources or you've been thrown out or you've been absorbed or merged into something else. That's an infinite game. It keeps going on and on and on. And, you know, you can have finite games like a, a cup championship within an infinite system. So that works with football and that cup championship being the finite element. But the infinite game of staying in the league keeps going on for a long time. You know, why is this important or why is this interesting for healthcare? I think Craig pulls out this idea that we run into problems when we have an infinite game, and let's face it, emergency medicine isn't going to stop. It's about staying in the game. It's about keeping going. It's about keeping things moving. There's no real defined endpoints in that. There's, there's, there's not a, a, a standard set of rules or anything like that. But what we've seen with health service management is them bring in what are essentially finite rules. So things like your performance against a target, your ability to measure yourself against times for this or a, a system moving through at a particular pace. And that's really difficult because if you run an emergency department, you'll know that feeling that if you're you're being measured about your performance of patient flow, which is the most common thing that we do, or even some other aspects of quality, such as quality performance about patient care, they're not really finite rules, but we're applying them within an infinite game. So in this really complex field as healthcare, there's so many variables involved that the effects of change, it's a non-linear effect. So you move one thing, it doesn't automatically get better in another area. So any change designed to make one thing better often has completely unintended consequences. And the use of targets leads to all sorts of weird, perverse outcomes and gaming in itself. So I think it's an interesting blog. It's changed the way that I think about my shifts, actually, because now on those really difficult days when the department's you know, going to hell and I feel that perhaps you know we're not hitting our targets and I wonder if it's me that's the problem. Well, actually, I don't think it is. I think the problem is that we're in this infinite game with a whole different set of rules which aren't necessarily defined. We've got a whole bunch of arbitrary targets which aren't linked to the, to the performance of the system and which may indeed have their own adverse consequences that it makes me understand how sometimes things don't go well and it's not my fault and it's not my colleague's fault and it's not my individual departmental fault. Now, I'm not getting away from the idea that we have to have targets. We do have to have targets and outcomes and performance measures, but I think we need to understand them better. And I think Craig's done a good job of putting a bit of theory behind that. So I, I, I recommend you go and have a look at that. 
Then we've got another blog from Rusty Carroll. Um, you may remember he is a very candid and very open clinician who has undergone a very significant period of PTSD uh, following some really traumatic events in his work, working as a pre-hospital clinician, as a paramedic. And we're running a couple of series on the, on his experiences. And the second one um, is in July this month about keep walking PTSD and me. And in that, Rusty talks about talks about the difficulties of having a really tough experience in the early stages of PTSD, perhaps, where the ability to put up a front, to keep walking, to put up a mask, to just make things happen as if they are apparently normal, even though they're not, is a temptation and a reality for many people. And getting to this work, play, sleep, repeat sort of cycle of just keeping going, keeping going, when actually there's a problem underneath um, is a real issue. I think this is a series that we're going to run and help people like me, um, who've fortunately not experienced these events, understand the lived experience of people like Rusty. And there are many more of them out there about how coping mechanisms can actually be helpful, but also they can provide a bit of a mask and actually prevent people potentially from getting help. So it's a it's a very current area of our um, interest in St. Emlyn's and, and emergency medicine in general. If you've got any interest in this, and I think you should, because if it's not you, it'll probably be somebody you're working with. I think you should have a look at that and see if you can see any clues in yourself, perhaps, or, or in others of similar experiences to the ones that Rusty's undergone. Then we've got a journal club post in July, a really important one, actually, about the use of epinephrine in cardiac arrest. There's a big trial being published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I hope that you've seen it already. It's a British-led trial, which I think is fantastic. The Paramedic 2 collaborators, led by Gavin Perkins, who's a top chap, um, a randomised trial of epinephrine out of hospital cardiac arrest. And this is the one that we've been looking forward to because there's been such a controversy about whether or not epinephrine, or as it's more commonly known in Virchester, and more appropriately, thank you very much, adrenaline, is any benefit in cardiac arrest. And I think what I was hoping for was a very clear steer coming out of this paper to tell me whether or not it is or it isn't. Because it's a good paper. It's a randomised controlled trial. There's over 8,000 participants in the UK and they've looked at a group of patients who have not resolved their cardiac arrest with sort of simple defibrillation. So it is the group of patients in whom you would use epinephrine. And they looked at the survival rates of um, patients at 30 days. And it was interesting. There was 3.2% of the patients surviving at 30 days in the epinephrine group and 2.4% in the placebo group. So you think, oh, well, that's pretty good. That's um, well, a fairly significant benefit to the use of epinephrine. And that was their primary outcome. The difficulty is that the secondary outcomes, and we can have a debate about whether it's, it should have been the primary outcome, is about sort of significant disability, not just death, at um, similar time points. And there, it's, it's trickier, because severe impairment, and they use the, the modified ranking scale, was more common in the survivors in the epinephrine group than in the placebo group, which is interesting. The conclusion is essentially that in adults without a heart hospital cardiac arrest, epinephrine does result in more people surviving at 30 days, but there's no real difference between favourable neurological outcome because more of the survivors had severe neurological impairment. And that's left us with a bit of a dilemma because what does it mean, really? What does it mean to us as clinicians? Should we be doing it? Because we are going to get more survivors, but more of them are going to be neurologically damaged. That's, a, that's almost a non-medical question. It's a medical ethics question. It's almost one that society needs to, to put forward, really. So 
I'm not sure. I think at the moment my practice isn't going to change. I'm not going to sort of go out and abandon epinephrine because I don't think this trial tells me to do that. I think I am going to have to wait for a more informed decision. And the reason why I said that the secondary outcome should have perhaps been the first is one of the things which I thought they did, which was great, it's in the paper, is they actually asked the public what they thought was the most important outcome. And actually, neurologically intact survival is what the public want. And I think as a clinician, that's what I want too. So... Although it was their secondary outcome and there's all these issues of power and we shouldn't sort of look at secondary outcomes as, a, as the main thing, I do think it's really important that we take that on board. So great trial, well conducted, UK, fabulous people doing it, well reported, well described, and still we're left with a bit of a dilemma. But that's medicine. That's one of the reasons why it's hard. That's why it's so interesting that it isn't so straightforward. But uh, well done to the authors for putting that together for us. And then what else have we got? We've got um, a quick update. Teaching co-op course is in October, almost sold out. In fact, by the time this goes out, I suspect we'll be sold out for October, which is fantastic. That's going to be a great course in Manchester. Still got some tickets for the St. Emily's Live Conference on the 9th October. So if you want to come along to that, it's pretty cheap. And we've aimed to make it really exciting. Got an international faculty, which you're not going to find anywhere else. I can promise you not on a one day course in the UK. So come along and join us for the day. And then I've got a really interesting post. I really like this from Natalie May about paronychias. Now, paronychias are not resus. You're not going to find this on the super duper resus level FOMED sites. But if you've ever had a paronychia, you know, they're really painful. And actually, if you've ever treated a paronychia, you'll know that they're really quite satisfying things to deal with. So they're quite a lot of fun. But I don't think, and I've been raving on about this for years and years and years, we don't manage paronychia very well in the ED. And way back when uh, in the mid 90s, we actually started a small randomized control trial comparing incision and drainage versus lifting the nail fold for the treatment of paronychias. Now, we didn't get enough patients to actually complete that trial, but the early data I could tell you now was suggestive that lifting the nail bed, uh, lifting the nail fold was much better than incision and drainage. And Natalie May's done a fabulous review looking at exactly this about how paronychias is formed, uh, what we can do about it, um, what are the various different options are for it, and how to treat it. I've got to say that she agrees with me, and the, the data would suggest that what we need to do is look at the nail, try and avoid incision and drainage, and basically just lift the, the nail fold area just at the base of the nail, which is around the eponychium, I think I've pronounced that correctly, um, and then let it release. And to be honest, that's much better than causing a new wound, as in incision and drainage, than just lifting it. You can, there's various other little tips and tricks on there, like soaking the skin in advance and which device you can use to, to raise the skin. And then in our trial in the UK, and again, this isn't evidence-based, but for the very large ones, we actually put a little wick in there and then took it out three days. And they heal so much better. So there's also some interesting information in there about some mimics. So make sure you don't miss something like an osteomyelitis or a tendon injury which can occasionally mimic as a paronychia. So I like that one because I can guarantee that most people who read that blog will change their practice. And that's what FOMED is about, isn't it? It's about learning new stuff, making things better for you, making things better for your patients. So have a look at that. I guarantee that if you work in emergency medicine, I guarantee that you will do something interesting on the basis of that blog. Right, I'm going to call it quits there because I've got loads of other things to do. Have an excellent time, what it is, whatever it is you're doing. For those of you who are going to see in October, that is fantastic. Don't forget, you can still get a ticket for St. Emily's Live. And keep an eye on the blog, keep an eye on the podcast, and we will speak and hear from you soon. Have fun.